Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, my daddy worked the land like his father before, rising up every day to the song of the birds. The birds have all gone. And my dad, he has to. Well, it I'm is published or not, but it's a very different way to start. From it's International I Women's Day, and of course, my other presenters, David and Ewan, are guys, so they've not been invited today. It's just me, Jan Goldsmith, chatting to authors on 3CR. Wow. Welcome, authors. It's just lovely. It's, it's lovely to fill the studio with women. Uh, International Women's Day, no David or Ewan, just me and some wonderful guests who have a little in common. They're both writers of books, plays and TV series, but at different times. If you remember The Sullivans, that was the time Judy Beerworth was doing her writing nearly 30 years ago. While Deborah Oswald is much more current, she was the creator of Offspring. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Jan. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, we're going to start off with Deborah, and it's going to be a fictional writing we're going to talk about. Her new book, The Whole Bright Year, has a, a picture of a most delicious peach on it. And for me, ripe, juicy peaches mean summer. Well, where have you set the book, Deborah? Well, the book is set in it's set in nineteen seventy six, actually, on a peach farm um, in um, sort of western New South Wales. But it could be a peach farm anywhere. It could be in the people of Shepparton have taken the book to themselves, and I'm happy for that too. So it's set it's set on a peach farm um, run by a woman and her sixteen year old daughter. Yeah, well, that, Celia, the mother. Mm. She's a widow. And she's running this this peach farm just with her daughter, and it's of course peach season, school holidays. But in the packing shed, and this is a quote: wearing her favourite Indian skirt, a flowing ankle-length garment made from gold and purple fabric with tiny mirrors sewn into it, is Rosa. Who's Rosa? Rosa is a seventy-three-year-old Hungarian woman, um, a, a Holocaust survivor, who works as the packer in the shed. Um, and, and I discovered that in my research that it's not uncommon for older women to be employed as the packers in sheds. So when I realised that in my initial research, I thought, oh, fantastic, I'll, I'll use that. Because I love, I love having a character like Rosa there as this sort of more experienced eye on all mm. the sort of flailing about that the other characters are doing. And, um, and also because the book is a little bit a retelling of the Demeter and Persephone myth, yeah. the Greek myth, that Rosa is, is a sort of Hecate figure. The kind of you know wise crone on living in the corner watching everything that's going on. Well, this wise crone has got a son, Joe. He's a lawyer who lives in town. He's married to Heather. He's got two sons, and Rosa blames her 
Heather, the daughter-in-law, for absolutely everything. It's even Joe's beer belly. <laughs> yes, because he's so unhappy that he's forced yeah. to drink. Um, yes, she's very hard on him. But I think, I think in a way that that's a sort of jokey version of the of the bigger theme in the book, which is oh. that urge that we all have to protect the people we love from suffering. And if you saw your child married to somebody that you thought was making them miserable, it would break, it would tear you up, wouldn't it? Oh, it would. And but you've used Heather as a little bit of a light relief, I think. She is, and I, I, I'm generally very kind to all my characters, even if they're flawed. I generally love them. Probably with Heather, I allowed myself to be a little bit mean. Well, Paul Celia, now here it is, prime pick, uh, peach picking time, and. Her, all her pickers have failed her and she can't get any pickers. But Joe, the good guy, he always comes through with, with something. Yeah. And and what does he, how does he help? So they're desperate to get the peaches in because the fruit will rot if mm. they don't. So he finds these two strangers with their car broken down on the side of the road in town and drives them out there to be sort of emergency workers. So this, this sort of fairly desperate pair... Yeah. From the city, arrive needing work, needing needing the money to fix their car. Sheena and Kieran, let's have a little uh, listen to uh, Deborah Oswald reading from page number nine about Kieran. Um, <clears throat> so Kieran bounded up towards the shed. He was tall, with long, loose limbs, wearing board shorts, a singlet, and sneakers without socks. Down his right arm, dragons and sea animals and tendrils of vegetation curled together in a tattoo that enveloped his arm. Well, it would have enveloped it if the process had not been left unfinished, leaving gaps in the design and the bodies of some creatures only half-formed. His hair must once have been cut in a mohawk with shaved sections and a longer strip on the top, but it had been left to grow out, so now it looked like a lopsided mistake. Even so, he was still beautiful in the way well-proportioned young bodies can shine, no matter what ill-advised and ridiculous things have been inflicted upon them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. So you get this whole feel about Akiran. He's just like a happy puppy, really. He is. I mean, he's he's also um he's he's about 18 and he's mm. had a very rough start in life. And he's he's got this sort of irrepressible joy and trust in people, mm. which gets him in trouble because he doesn't have a filter. Mm. He doesn't know when to filter out people who are bad for him and people who are good for him. But he's I mean, the other characters refer to him as this sort of life force. So you I hope the reader will feel, even though Kieran does some very foolish things in the book, I really hope people will feel this kind of desire to to rescue him and, and to protect him from himself. Well, that's exactly what Sheena wants to do, and she continues to try. Sheena's to do his, this. Sister. his sister, his older sister, yeah, yeah. You know, she's twenty-seven; he's only you know, eighteen. But the, you, know, you wonder just what that relationship, of course, it, it, that they have. Um, Zoe. Now, of course, Zoe, the young 16-year-old, Celia's daughter. Zoe and Kieran. There's attraction. <sighs> there there's is. There's the ability to talk freely. As nature intended. Oh, there's the first kiss. Yes. Oh, it's so fun writing that stuff because you get to kind of relive these moments that either you fondly remember or wish had happened, oh, even absolutely. if they never did. And, of course, Sheena sort of sees all of this and sort of reflects on her own, and as does Celia, the mother. And, well, then it gets to... The first sexual experience, and I love. I think only Deborah Oswood would be able to put this: getting the pink bits tangled. Well, <laughs> I, I thought that was lovely. Look, I'm a, thank you. I'm a great believer that in in sex, there should just be more sex generally in books, on television, and in life. 
And I don't mean sexual violence and, you know, terrible sexual murders in dramas. I mean good, hearty people enjoying themselves sex. There should just generally be more of it. <laughs> we have Judy Beerworth right, you know, putting up her arms in glee yes. at that statement. At that statement. She knows. She does, doesn't she? And you know what? She knows also. She she knows. She's, she's 27. She's been around. Yes. And she understands about sex. In fact, oh, Deborah Oswald, would you read, please, from page 116? So, I apologise. Well, I was going to say to any men who are listening, but today we don't have to. <laughs> so this is Sheena describing her brother being happy yeah. after he started having sex with Zoe. Spoiler alert, I'm sorry. <laughs> so Sheena says, Men who were getting plenty of sex were so predictable, even her drug-stewed little brother. Every guy she'd been with was the same. If they were in a grumpy mood for whatever reason, she could always cheer them up with a root. One minute they'd be cranky or worried or sad, but then post-root... They'd grin like gormless dopes, prancing to the bathroom making lame jokes. Transforming a man's mood really could be that simple. Once she'd cottoned on to how easy it was to manipulate their primitive psyches, it was even harder to respect them. Which was not to say that Sheena wasn't into sex herself. She missed it when she went too long without, but she wasn't sure a bout of good sex was worth all the other bullshit that surrounded the procedure. I, just... I feel on International Women's Day, that's a very good piece to read. <laughs> and, of course, we talked about Rosa. She's the older woman um, picker, the packer at the, at the orchard. And she always tried not to be judgmental. But I love the, the term you give her, to her. <clears throat> Watching this romance between uh, Zoe and Kieran, she thought of herself as a ger- geriatric vampire feeding off the energy that radiated from their passion. <laughs> yes, that's my policy. I try to suck the life force from young people, which is why you have to work with young people and why I like writing about young people because it's a way to kind of tap into all that stuff. Yeah, it? yes. Uh, and, of course, th- about two weeks after... Uh, Sheena and Kieran arrive it's Christmas now Christmas can be wonderful or pretty terrible Rosa sees Christmas as a festival of food generosity and gathering of family and uh, along comes Heather with her cooking oh Deborah you you have has anybody ever cooked those things for you Made they those? have I found I found recipes and pictures on the internet oh, so I I, it was one of the great joys researching the stuff about the 1970s for this book was fun because I was, I was 16 in 1976, which is the age that Zoe is 16, which yeah. is why I chose it. But for some of the detail, I had to, re- you know, I had to remind myself what, what went on and, and you know, an, an igloo made of dead mashed potato filled <laughs> with sausage meat. It exists. I can show you a picture. Oh, dear. Yes. Well, going from the hilarity of uh, Heather's cooking to sometimes – Christmas can be very sad, and not just Christmas, but in through the story we have um, Zoe actually realising her depression, and that's written about beautifully too. But we're not going to read that. You're going to tell us a little bit how you research that because you've put it down on paper so well. Oh, I don't know that I researched that. I think Did I you? just I just remember oh, um, right. because it's uh, I have a, I'm someone whose moods can fluctuate fairly wildly. Yeah, maybe like a lot of creative people. Um, so 
remembering what that feels like, especially when you're 16, is something that's not hard for me to do. Yeah. Um, about about feeling that everything is bleak and 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 everything that happens to you spirals into dragging you further down. Because the book is about the light versus dark. It's about oh. you know um, the beautiful world of summer and fruit and plenty and and the underworld, whatever that means for somebody. In in the actual events in the book, but also within a person, that a person can have um, glorious, joyful, energetic moods, but they can also go into a very dark place. So that was meant to be a reflection of the the sort of whole plot of the book in a way. Uh, Well, part one takes just a few weeks when Celia decides she must get rid of the pickers for the good of her daughter Zoe. Part two is quite a surprise. We're not going into that. People have to read it. But it's finishing with the peach picking season again. So the title of the book is The Whole Bright Year. But I wonder about the word bright in that. Well, the, t- the title actually comes is a line from the Tennyson poem about Demeter and Persephone, um, the Greek goddess whose daughter was taken off to the underworld. Um, and she went, ser- and so in the myth, she goes searching for her daughter, and the earth falls into ruin. Um, and there's a line in the poem where Demeter, the mother, is yearning to spend the whole bright year with her child. Ah. So it, it's not really an ironic title, it's about the urge to be, to, for, for it always to be bright all year, which it can never be. Mm. Um, but I suppose I also think that. You have to just sort of take life, all of it, and grab hold of all of it. And and if there are dark bits in it, it doesn't stop the whole thing being bright. I know that sounds maybe it sounds a bit sappy, but um, you've got to kind of grab hold of all of life. That's part of becoming an adult. Mm. The, the, the book is partly about how you become an adult and lose your innocence and 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 step out into the world as a grown-up, which is what Zoe has to do. Very quickly. <laughs> um, she does, very quickly. Goodness. I mean, more quickly than you would wish as a, as a parent, but it's a, it's a kind of accelerated version of what happens to everyone. Yeah. Well, through the book, we also get the reminders that it's set back in 1977. We've got a Christmas present being a diary with 1977 on the front cover. We've also got the keenness of the two boys to play this brand-new game called Mousetrap, Mousetrap, yeah, and and the TV series that that's on Matlock, Matlock Police and on the buses, <laughs> it, they're all little hikes back. It was pretty dire, I can tell you. If you look at TV programs yeah. from that time, it's good to be reminded of how desperate it was. Well, this is where I'm going to segue into your other type of writing, the different type of writing you do mm. for Offspring. You created that that whole series. Well done. Well, I I created the setup and I wrote the telly movie, but the series was written by there were two other guys who wrote a lot of the series yeah. with me. So it takes a team of people to write sixty five episodes. Well, here I'm going to bring in Judy Beerworth because she was associated with one. It didn't go to where though, but one um, writing of the Sullivans. No. She's no, she's not. She's well. What what TV series were you involved with? I'm sorry. What TV series were you involved? I, with? I, I was accepted to write for the Sullivans. They'd been on for six and a half years, and my timing has always been out. And I found that between my first conference and the next one, when they were put together around the table, um, 
Sullivan's was extra oh. after six and a half years, so it was just bad timing. I didn't write for Sullivan's. Oh, I'm sorry, but at no, least you're right. writing. Yeah. But yeah. you've written a book. You've written a book called it was uh, a, Late Entry. What yes, was your... a self-indulgent memoir. Yeah. Oh. I, I think it did me good. I, re- I think I wrote it for myself and uh, I enjoyed it, writing it, uh, getting it all together. And I rather wish I'd put my talent into a book that was out there, not, not, a, not a memoir. Okay. I, well, now I'm looking at your writing, Deborah, because you're, you also write for Aussie Bites. Now, these are these little kids' books, young kids' books, yes. oh, about grade four, grade five, or yes. even younger in primary school. So how, how do you know what's going to work where? You know, you, you, you get an idea of a plot or a character and where do you place it? Look, you don't know what's going to work and that's, and that's what's sometimes terrifying about the process. I mean, I wrote those kids' books when I had young kids in my house. So it does help because your head is, is in that world and, and the things that matter to them. I don't know that I could write books for kids that young anymore. I could write for teenagers, I think, because mm-hmm. we can always remember what it's like to be a teenager. But the best thing you can do, I mean, I sit at home in my cubby, in my Ugg boots and tracky dacks, <laughs> trying to guess what's going to work with people. And you just don't know. So I guess with television you do a little bit because there's a lot more collaboration in the process. Mm-hmm. But with a book, it's just this massive guessing game. And then when the book goes out there into the world, you just hope that it lands with people in a way that grabs them. Well, one of the things that also is quite different from a book to maybe a stage play is dialogue. You know, you can sort of set the scene in a book, which you do beautifully, and, of course, with Judy's book up in um, New New Guinea, uh, you can set the scene, but it's the dialogue. So you've both written plays. Um, Deborah's won... uh, Well, you won the the New South Wales Primary Literary, Literary Award for Stories in the Dark. Yes, that was that's a play for young people, actually. Okay. Um, um, but I've been writing plays. I wrote. I um, been writing plays since I was twelve, um, and sold my first one to radio when I was seventeen. So that was kind of my first thing was being a playwright. So um, it was a very exciting time in the seventies for theatre. There was a lot of Australian plays going on and plays by women going on. So it was. Um, it was a very encouraging time to start. And Judy, you had a play, um, Alive and Kicking, produced by Playbox yes. in 1991. So what was that about? Oh, uh, old people um, individual, living in a house. A man's wife had died and he, an old friend of his moved in and then they decided to get a couple of women with them as well. They're all in their 70s. Uh, and there was a young boy who was a gardener. Um, and there was a doctor visiting, I think. Or no, the, oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, it was a very interesting experience to me in live theatre to be able to sit up in the high, watch the audience. And there was one particular line I thought was so funny. The audience never laughed. And after, I'm sitting there time after time. Uh, eventually you take it out because the audience is right. Yes. Mm. that's. I, I absolutely get what you're saying, Jude. It's, a, mm. it's the best thing about writing theatre that you can sit in an audience and in the dark, so no one knows it's, it's you. It's fascinating. And you can see when people laugh, when they don't, mm. when they lean forward, worried yes. about the characters, when they gasp. And there's dead silence when somebody yes. dies, you know. Yes. So so, um, so the, first few, the first few performances, I'm up the back with the text, yeah. slashing and burning, 
<laughs> and changing stuff. Yes, yes, yes. And swapping scenes around, and it's 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 this incredible experience that you don't get in any mm. other form, really. It's great because you're great. you're really in it, aren't you? Yes. And what's nice about it is that the audience is responding to the characters and the story in front of you. That's right. It's so good, isn't it? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Whereas yeah. otherwise, you're you're in a TV or. Oh, TV, you're part of the team and the whole thing has to be created, produced and so on. I, I Actually, I'm very interested in production too and I rather wish I'd gone that way to produce stuff. Yes, we all should have done that, I think. <laughs> and on International Women's Day, may I say to any young women listening, become producers. Well, this is exactly what Nicole Kidman and Reese White Wotherspoon have done. Yes. Is, is t- so that they can have more women on stage and um, yeah, they've screen, become yes. the, the producers. It's what um, uh, I, Tanya, with um, Mar- Margot, Margot Robbie. Robbie yes. It's exactly what she did. You know, so, so hopefully, yeah, as you're yes, right, there'll be thing. more women. My play actually came from trying to get into television and doing a bit of... I got a, a couple of one-hour things on the ABC... Uh, way back, and um, then I failed to get something on in television. I thought, right, oh, I'll rewrite it for the stage, and that's how I got my play on. Yes. Mm. I think that kind of resilience, that kind of, um, I call it creative ecology, um, <laughs> converting things into other forms, but just the sort of the, the, the sort of resilience to keep going with all the knockbacks mm. is, is the single most important thing in terms of a writing career uh, agree, over, agree. over a lifetime. What about characters? Have you ever sort of seen a character on stage and you think, oh, I really like the way I've written that character. I'll put that character somewhere else. I I guess I'm going to confess that. The the, the Kieran and Sheena characters in this, there were some characters that I I wrote in in another play of mine that I liked so much. I wanted to revisit them and they were a married couple in that play. But the dynamic between them, the kind of puppyish, optimistic person foolish person with the kind of more protective, hard-bitten female partner. I loved that dynamic. Mm. So they weren't the same characters, but I kind of took that dynamic and, and reformed it as a brother and sister, so I should, probably shouldn't have confessed that, should I? I absolutely, you should have, okay. because it's, it's, it's what we want to hear about writers, you know, that mm. nothing, it, it, things can be borrowed from their own writing, not just... Um, yeah, yeah. You're not borrowing character, you're borrowing the... the a, a dynamic, uh, yes. The dynamic, yeah. Okay. Oh wow. Um, so I can't. I, to me, it's stage plays is all about dialogue. Now this book isn't really doesn't have that much dialogue. Of course, the book I'm talking about is um, the whole bright year by Deborah Oswald. It doesn't have that much dialogue in it. I suppose it doesn't. Um, uh, for me, because I jump between theatre and television and fiction. To me, the 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 thing that's in all of them that I care about is story and character. So the means by which I convey that, whether it's it's prose or dialogue, it, that's beside the point for me. Making the story work, I mean, I write the story out on little file cards on my dining room table mm-hmm. and look at it like a diagram to see if it makes sense and if it's moving quickly enough and so forth. Um, and then how I go about telling that bit of story will depend. I mean, the, the glorious thing about fiction is that you just get to write about what's going on in people's heads. Yeah. Whereas in drama, all you've got is what people say and do. And so with drama, there's a kind of decoding going on all the time in the way that all of us are doing in real life. We're all the way, all the time trying to work out the inner life of the person we're talking to Mm -hmm. based on what they're saying, which is very difficult to do. But aren't the silences important too? Exactly, on what they don't say and all that. So you're all the time trying to decipher and 
one of the things that was fun about writing this book was that it's told from the point of view of different characters. It's in the third person, but we're in the head mm. of Rosa or we're in the head of Sheena or Celia. And a lot of the interest comes from the way people are getting it wrong, <laughs> the way they're trying to work oh. out what the other person is, is thinking and why they're doing what they're doing. And we, the reader, might know, but the other poor characters don't know. And they make mistakes, yeah. as we all do. The insecurity of being a 16-year-old. <gasps> oh, yes. Oh. Yes. It's still, we, that 16-year-old that is still within me. Oh. She travels everywhere with me. You know, you're talking, we're talking about sort of the necessity for dialogue and, um, and then in comparison, uh, film or TV series. You were talking about Offspring being filmed just down the road here and the importance of set. And yes. things around them in uh, on television. Yes. I mean, it's one of the lovely things about writing television. You've got all these incredibly talented people at the bit they do, like design, coming in and, and bringing this idea that's on the page to life. So actors coming along and being fabulous and somebody choosing the most perfect location that, that will make a scene sing for you um, and you... I've always just feel sort of desperately grateful to those people for for helping helping us. Yeah. You you had you your the secret life of us was yours too, wasn't it? No, I just wrote one episode of that. Just one. Of I was episode. just a hired hand on that. Okay, that and was that was a great. That was show. Down in St Kilda, it was. Now, what, what's a Sydney girl doing? You know, sort of frequenting <laughs> Melbourne with their well, setting so much. I think you'll find it's um, <laughs> it's Film Victoria encouraging us to come here, giving us Good. money and saying come. Oh, I'm pleased. Also, with Melbourne's it. a great place to shoot. It just looks. It's a fabulous-looking city to shoot in. Really? Yeah, and it's very groovy. I mean, Offspring was very hip, and Fitzroy and, and, and Collingwood and so forth is so hip you can hardly... For a Sydney person, it's almost too much for me. <laughs> <laughs> We're the tops here. <laughs> well, we should really finish up with Judy because you haven't said enough yet. What would oh. you like to say about your writing? Um, I did have um, an hour play on television in about 73, I think it was, called Autumn Roses. I remember Alwyn Kurtz was in it. Yes. I, 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 do you remember it? How nice of you. No, I remember Alwyn Kurtz. <laughs> oh, that's better. <laughs> uh, I wrote it for a, a failed man and they, they cast Alwyn Kurtz, who's not a failed man. No. I mean, a very well-built man. Anyway, it was successful enough, I guess. Um, and then uh, had another thing accepted called Matty. Um, but that by that time they decided ABC decided not to do any more hour plays. They went into series. Mm. Um, and... It's been an interesting time, but I'm now 91, and uh, so 91. I, I started writing at 40, so I right. was a secretary. So I missed, I missed all those years when I, the first, when you start writing, well, I, you started young, but when you start writing, you make mistakes. You've got to go through that period sure. of making mistakes. Yes. And when I tried to get into TV, I'm aged 40, in 40s, and most people are in their 20s, 30s, and a couple of times I felt that on the phone, great, talking to someone on the phone, met them at the door, it all went cold yeah. because their mother was now going to be on the team. <laughs> <laughs> it was a matter of timing, I think. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Although there's lots of people who, lots of people who's, lots of novelists, I collect, now that I'm getting older myself, I collect stories about people who have written 
when they're older and start oh, late. Oh, in books, yeah. It's important, to, it's important to hang on to the option that, that that's possible. <laughs> well, I'm going to finish up with a quote from Judy Beerworth, and I, I'm sorry, it's your quote. Yes, and I'm saying it. <laughs> the ultimate deadline is a terrific incentive to find the necessary energy and inspiration to write. Oh, well, Judy, that's fantastic. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and, of course, we're chatting with um, 91-year-old Judy, Beerworth and much younger much younger <laughs> Deborah Oswald about her book The Whole Bright Year published by um, Penguin Random House look thank you both ladies for coming in on can an I just say to day. Deborah stop skiting you'll all get old you'll, it'll, you'll see <laughs> don't worry I'm, I, I don't okay well Ruminations is coming in so we'll be going out